This is the Humanist Report with Mike Figueredo. Welcome to the Humanist Report. My name is Mike Figueredo, and this is the 58th episode of the podcast. Today, we have to thank several new individuals who decided to become sponsors of the Humanist Report. Today, we have Suzanne Merriman, a new member, Ernesto Acosta, Leslie Andrews, and Maggie Alhadef, all new members. We also have to send a thank you to James Paris for sending in another donation, who is also a member. And then we have some new Patreon patrons. We have JM to thank, Robert Reagan Telesco, and Georgie Tavkalishvili. All these individuals make this episode and this podcast possible. So thank you to all of these people. If you too would like to either become a Patreon patron or become a member on humanistreport.com, you can see the links down below in the description box. But so long as you always just watch and stay engaged, then that's all we can ever ask or hope for. So on today's episode, we've got a lot of topics to cover. I'll talk about how YouTube censorship now threatens thousands of content creators across YouTube. And on the subject of censorship, I'll also discuss how PBS and Facebook are trying to censor Jill Stein's criticism of Hillary Clinton. Additionally, Elizabeth Warren attacked Jill Stein and woke up the beast. So I'll talk about Jill's response. And getting to election integrity, I'll discuss Tim Canova's allegations that Debbie Wasserman Schultz actually rigged the primary against him. I'll also discuss a terrifying new revelation about Hillary Clinton's foreign policy and how flawed public polling is preventing third-party candidates from getting into the national debates. Additionally, I will talk about the new findings surrounding the FBI's inquiry into Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server. And finally, I will talk with Misty Snow, a U.S. Senate candidate from Utah, who is running to defeat Tea Party candidate Mike Lee. So all of these topics will be covered in this episode. Hopefully you guys enjoy the show, but let's first jump into the weekly dose of stupidity before we get to the substance. In a world of politics dominated by the strange, the deranged, and outright insane, we'll now take a moment to shine a light on the craziest of what politics has to offer. This is your weekly dose of stupidity. I want to thank the best support and your friendship and for knocking on doors, making phone calls, practically living in our campaign headquarters. But, but really, most of all, most of all, I want to thank the people that I have had the privilege of serving for nearly 12 years in Congress and 24 years as a public servant in this community for giving me the greatest professional privilege of my life. The chance to be able to be our community's voice, the chance to be able to stand up for the principles and values that our community stands for. This is a community with an incredibly progressive heart. Progressive, 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 progressive. You keep using the word. I don't think it means what you think it means. And helped me to be able to shout from the rooftops the idea that you can, in America, use government as a catalyst to improve people's lives. And that is what I passionately believe in.
are so dumb. You are really dumb. For real. Stupidity. So by now, you all know that Debbie Wasserman Schultz, the former DNC chair who resigned in disgrace for rigging the primary against Bernie Sanders, has unfortunately defeated her progressive challenger, Tim Canova. Now, what's the first thing that a politician does when he or she loses? They concede. Well, Tim Canova is not going down without a fight, and he is now refusing to concede. He states, I'll concede that Debbie Wasserman Schultz is a corporate stooge. We're fighting for American democracy. This is a rigged system, and everyone knows it. <laughs> yep, can't argue with that. The reason why Tim Canova is refusing to concede is because, just like the Democratic primary, this one was rigged. So according to U.S. Uncut, Canova spokesman Marzia Passarella confirmed that Canova has refused to concede, saying there is an investigation ongoing of apparent voting irregularities, including possible fraud. Now, we don't necessarily know what occurred specifically. At this point, all we know is that uh, Debbie Wasserman Schultz has received almost 7,000 more votes than Tim Canova, but we don't know how many precincts were affected by this possible fraud. We don't know how off the exit polls were. We don't have very much. Now, we already know what people are going to say in response to Tim Canova. Dude, put away your tinfoil hat. You know, you can't keep using election fraud as a defense when progressives lose. But here's the thing that people don't realize. Election fraud occurs at a much higher rate than people are willing to admit. And the only reason why we're actually paying attention to it now is because it really hurt a candidate that millions of people loved and were inspired by. Back in 2008, the first election I was old enough to vote in, I remember being terrified because I saw articles about how people who went in to vote for Barack Obama saw their votes flipped to John McCain. And these machines, which can be hacked in less than five minutes, they pose a threat to our democracy and the integrity of our democracy. So even though it's the case that Tim Canova's campaign hasn't released any specific information about what potentially transpired and why he feels as though the system was rigged, let's look at the details here. So knowing Debbie Wasserman Schultz, she tipped the scales in favor of Hillary Clinton during the Democratic primary, rigged the debate schedule, not just against Bernie, but her opponent, Tim Canova. She cut off Bernie Sanders' access to Van and also cut off Tim Canova's access to Van. And there were also voter suppression tactics used by either her campaign or her super PAC. And just an update on that access to Van thing, everyone likes to blame Bernie Sanders because one of his staffers, who was recommended, by the way, by the DNC, they said, Bernie, hire this individual and he later accessed Hillary Clinton's voter files, well, they blamed that as to why they cut off Bernie Sanders' access to Van. So that's Bernie's fault, right? So what happened to Tim Canova? Did he have a staffer that accessed Debbie Wasserman Schultz's voter files? No, that's not what happened. So what Debbie Wasserman Schultz decided to do was cut off every progressive challenger's access to Van in the country. So any Democrat who was challenging an incumbent their access to Van was snatched away. This doesn't just include Tim Canova, but someone named Alex Law, who was running in New Jersey, who I've interviewed, who's been on the podcast multiple times. So this is a dirty tactic. So many people can say that was Bernie's fault. No, that was a tactic that they used to sabotage Bernie Sanders' campaign right before the Iowa caucus, which is a very important part 
of the election. So here's the question. With all the knowledge that we have of Debbie Wasserman Schultz and how she's willing to cheat, get dirty, and just straight up rig elections, can we actually believe Tim Canova? Look, she wouldn't have resigned in disgrace if it wasn't for these tactics. So clearly she's been guilty in the past. Why should we be skeptical now that she's not going to be guilty? And look, mark my word, she's going to win her primary. Not only is Florida a heavily Democratic-leaning, or excuse me, the 23rd district, I believe, which she's in, it's a heavily Democratic-leaning district, but even if it wasn't, she'd do whatever she needs to do to win. Use voter suppression tactics, you name it. So this is something that I think is really troubling because this tells us that we don't have a legitimate process. If we have a progressive challenger, then these establishment incumbents are willing to resort to these deceitful tactics, cheat, outright rig, and maybe even potentially commit election fraud. I mean, look at the Democratic primary in Massachusetts. We have Bill Clinton, who is someone who was a former president, commit election fraud. He's on video committing election fraud, where he literally walked into a polling booth and told people to, quote, pull the lever for Hillary Clinton. What was his excuse? I didn't know. Right, a former president didn't know about laws that are supposed to prevent candidates from trying to use these tactics, which is often seen as intimidation, which you're not supposed to do at the polling stations. That way, that's what you see in authoritarian regimes. So this honestly is troubling. So I will definitely keep you guys updated because if it is the case that Debbie Wasserman Schultz did actually rig the primary against Tim Canova, well, then we've got to make some noise. We've got to demand that she steps down because this is unacceptable. These incumbent establishment Democrats cannot continue to resort to these dirty tactics because they're undermining our democracy. Because of the Commission on Presidential Debates, it is really, really difficult for third-party candidates to qualify for the national debates because they have to reach 15% in public opinion polls, and not just one poll, but five different polls. The problem with that is when it comes to polling, the methodology is everything. Even if your wording is just slightly off, you could dramatically alter the results of the entire poll. Hence why we can't really trust a single poll and we have to take aggregate polling results into consideration. Now at this point, Jill Stein has reached 7% in some polls, but on average, she's probably about 3 to 5%. Gary Johnson has reached uh, 10% and above in some polls, hasn't yet hit 15%. But with how much people dislike Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, we have 80% of both Hillary and Donald Trump voters saying they're voting for their candidate, not because they prefer them more, but because they're voting against their opponent. Well, you have to question, why is it that it's so difficult for Gary Johnson and Jill Stein to reach 15% in the polls? Shouldn't they both be at 15% together? I mean, that's 30%. Well, it's weird, right? Well, part of that may have something to do with the methodology of the polls that are actually biasing the results in favor of Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. So Sam Husseini, founder of VotePack.org, penned an article for Huffington Post explaining the Bipartisan Commission on Presidential Debates announced what polls it will utilize in excluding candidates from its debates. The CPD says candidates like the Libertarian Party's Gary Johnson and the Green Party's Jill Stein must get 15% in polls conducted by five national public polling organizations. ABC slash Washington Post, CBS slash New York Times, CNN slash Opinion Research Corporation, Fox News, and NBC slash Wall Street Journal. Not only, as several have correctly argued, is the 15% threshold arbitrary and exclusionary, but these polls don't actually ask 
voter preferences at all. So seemingly, not asking a voter who they prefer, it seems like a relatively benign omission, right? As long as you're asking them who they're voting for, then that should be fine, right? Well, no, because who you're voting for and who you prefer are two entirely different questions because if you ask many people who they actually prefer between Hillary Clinton and Jill Stein, for example, many of them will say they prefer Jill Stein, but if you ask them who they're voting for, they'll say they're voting for Hillary Clinton strategically just so that way they can defeat Donald Trump. So those are entirely different questions. And if you based who can qualify for the national debates exclusively on the, pre on the question of who you prefer more, well, Gary Johnson and Jill Stein would probably get in easily. So he continues, they all ask if the presidential election were being held today, for whom would you vote? Or some minor variation of that. A better public opinion question would be, who do you want to be president? Or who do you prefer to be president? Or who is your first choice to be president? By contrast, the question that the CPD relies on from these media organizations, if held today, who would you vote for, is a tactical question. As has become increasingly clear, there are many people who would like Gary Johnson or Jill Stein to be president. However, many who fear Trump or Clinton are currently planning on voting for Clinton or Trump. So again, 80% are voting against a candidate, not for a candidate when they are supporting Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump at the polls. So if you ask who they prefer, that's going to change the poll dramatically. And we've all heard this argument. I love Jill Stein, but she can never win. So I'm going to have to vote for Hillary Clinton because I think she has the best chance at beating Donald Trump. And I care more about voting against Donald Trump and defeating him than I do about voting against Hillary Clinton. We've heard that, right? Well, that person literally prefers Jill Stein over Hillary Clinton. See the problem there? These polls are not helping third-party candidates. They are disproportionately helping the two mainstream political candidates, Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. That's a huge problem. So think about how problematic this is. The polls that the CPD chose to determine who can and cannot be included in debates is phrased in a way to diminish the prospects that Jill Stein or Gary Johnson's name will come out of voters' mouths. Now, regardless if this bias is intentional or not, which, of course, it's intentional, this is still a systematic error. The whole poll is flawed. Husseini argues, our voting system puts voters in a bind, making it difficult for them to vote their true preference. But public opinion polling should be a relief from that. Such polling should find out what the public thinks and wants, especially if the electoral system doesn't allow for those choices. But that's not what's happening. The tracking poll question that's being used over and over and obsessed over by all these organizations is actually disguising public opinion. And then the CPD acting on behalf of the two major parties is using that to exclude their third-party candidates from debates, further marginalizing any public thinking that questions the establishment parties. Now, the Republican senator, who is the director of the CPD, was asked whether or not he would change the debate eligibility requirement by asking voters who they prefer or who they would like to see in the debates, for example, rather than just asking who they're going to vote for. And this was his response. The issue is who do you want to be president? It's not who do you want to do a dress rehearsal and see who can be the cutest at the debate. So there you have it. It is complete and utterly arbitrary. And the two major parties, surprise, surprise, are trying to make it so that way no dialogue is furthered in this country. It's either them or the highway. Well, I say to hell with that. And look, 
Kyle Kulinski of Secular Talk, shout out to him, phenomenal YouTuber, phenomenal political commentator. He proposed this plan. He said, let's put pressure on the CPD, and if they're not going to change, we're going to force them to change. And I also want to sign on to that plan. So if you want to force the CPD to include Gary Johnson and Jill Stein in the debates and like this idea, here's what we do. We contact the CPD. You could email comments at debates.org. And the president of the CPD can be reached at president at nd.edu or knowing that all of our emails will just go directly into their junk mail folder, we can hit them where it really hurts. We could email their advertisers. So what you can do is you can contact their sponsors and demand that they pull out of the debates unless they want to be boycotted. So what I'll do is I will include a link down below in the description box, which will have um, all the email addresses and phone numbers of people at the CPD as well as sponsors of these debates. So if we make enough noise, if we put enough pressure on them, we can potentially make a difference. So look, it's time that if we're not going to get electoral reform, we're at least going to get these third-party candidates into the debate. So we have to fight like hell. Demand that Jill Stein and Gary Johnson, even if you only support one of those two, we need them both in the debates. Because if only one of them gets in, then the complaint is going to be that they're a spoiler. So if you have, if you have a spoiler on both sides, that removes that option. That removes that criticism and complaint. So let's get them both in the debates because that's the right thing to do. So who are two people who you would never expect to have beef with each other? Elizabeth Warren and Jill Stein. I mean, they agree on 99.9% .9 of the issues. And even though one person is more inclined to speak out on behalf of progressives, Jill Stein, well, they're still beefing. It started when Elizabeth Warren decided to attack Jill Stein. Now, according to the Boston Herald, Elizabeth Warren was asked what she would say to progressives that were considering voting for Jill Stein over Hillary Clinton. And this was her response. Anything you do that helps Donald Trump get one inch closer to the White House is a danger to all of us. Warren said, adding that a vote for Stein moves Donald Trump closer to the White House. Actually, no, you helped Donald Trump, Elizabeth. You decided to run away from the one candidate who outperforms Hillary Clinton in hypothetical matchups against Donald Trump. That is Bernie Sanders. So you helped Donald Trump by endorsing the weaker candidate and running away from the stronger candidate. So if you were really afraid that Donald Trump could take the White House, then you would have endorsed Bernie now, wouldn't you? So blame yourself and your party if Trump wins for not inspiring enough voters. And if you're worried about Donald Trump winning, Elizabeth, why don't you go and campaign for Hillary Clinton? Oh, wait, you were doing that until she decided not to choose you as her VP, thus making you look like a fool and a sellout for nothing. So now let's get to Jill Stein's response because she heard about the comments that Elizabeth Warren made and she decided to invoke No Chill Jill and just destroy Elizabeth Warren. So she tweeted out, sad to see Elizabeth Warren attacking real progressives on behalf of a Wall Street finance campaign. Hashtag walk the walk. <laughs> she also added, politicians are not entitled to our votes simply because they represent the establishment political parties with a majority of Americans rejecting Hillary Clinton and Trump with record high levels of dislike and distrust. Neither of them has earned our votes. I say don't waste your vote on politics as usual. That's throwing us under the bus. Invest your vote in a movement for real change. So Elizabeth Warren has yet to respond because 
she got owned. There's nothing she can really say to that that I think would be effective or substantive that proves her point. Jill Stein is right here. Just because Donald Trump is a buffoon doesn't automatically make Hillary Clinton a good candidate. It doesn't erase her flaws. It doesn't erase her record. Okay, so this notion that Democrats are entitled to our votes needs to stop. You have to stop saying that voters shouldn't vote for who they want to vote for. Our turnout is low enough. We don't need people like you saying, don't vote your conscience. And look, had Elizabeth Warren decided to run, and if she wasn't too afraid to challenge Hillary Clinton, progressives probably wouldn't even know about Jill Stein because strong progressive Democratic presidential nominees typically don't even have to worry about third-party challengers. And even though Elizabeth Warren still has a progressive record under her belt, She'll always have a gigantic blemish on her record. We'll all recall the time that she decided to run away from the most progressive political candidate ever because she was too afraid to not endorse him because of what the establishment might say or backlash. I don't know. But we'll all remember the time when Elizabeth Warren, even though she has a progressive record, decided to lay down on her ideals for the political establishment. So I'm really frustrated with Elizabeth Warren and disenchanted with her right now. People are touting her as this hero because she attacks Donald Trump. Okay, congratulations to you. You attack Donald Trump. He's the low-hanging fruit. Attack Hillary Clinton because I think that it's more courageous to point out the flaws in your Democratic Party. It's more difficult to actually criticize people who you're friends with and be objective than criticizing someone who 99% of the country, even if they may be voting for him, knows that he's stupid. So, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm so frustrated with Elizabeth Warren right now because she doesn't get why progressives are frustrated with Hillary Clinton. She doesn't understand why we're frustrated with her. The political establishment has failed us over and over and over. And if you expect us to vote against our own interest and not support Jill Stein, then you're horribly mistaken because it's Jill 2016 for progressives. We warned you during the primary that we would not support Hillary Clinton if Bernie was not the nominee and you chose to endorse Hillary Clinton anyway. So you made your bed as the Democratic Party. Now you lie in it, Elizabeth. You don't get to blame us if Hillary Clinton loses to Donald Trump, who is someone she should be winning easily against because he's an idiot. So PBS is a media resource that I've always considered to be one of the few that actually has integrity. However, YouTuber Matt Orphalia, who's actually a friend of mine, has uncovered a really troubling form of censorship. They had an interview with Jill Stein and, you know, they gave her a platform, allowed her to talk about her policy positions. But the problem is that they cut her off right when she got to a particular portion where she criticized Hillary Clinton. You've made it clear you think both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump would be terrible presidents for the country. So are you saying you think literally that Hillary Clinton is every bit as bad for the country as Donald Trump? I wouldn't there's say no there are no differences, but the differences are not enough to save your job because Hillary Clinton, you know, and now her uh, transition director, Ken Salazar, you know, they're big proponents of the Trans-Pacific Partnership, which is basically NAFTA on steroids. And uh, most observers believe that it will send our jobs overseas, as well as undermine American sovereignty by bringing in these international tribunals that get to pass judgment on our laws, on our public health protections, on our worker protections. Um, so you can't, you know, we can't count on saving our jobs, 
saving our lives. One in three Americans now cannot afford health care under Obamacare or saving the planet because Hillary has been a big proponent of fracking, as is Ken Salazar, her transition director. So we feel that in this election, we're not just deciding what kind of a world we're going to have, but whether we're going to have a world or not going forward. And knowing yeah. that the majority of Americans is unhappy with these two-party choices, this is the time for us to open up. Americans have not only a right to vote, but a right to know who we can vote for. So we're pushing for opening up the debates, and then let's see how the chips fall. Head on over there and subscribe to Matt's channel. He does great work. But here's here's what I want to stress. To me, this is particularly egregious because as someone who edits videos on a daily basis, you know, I bring in all these clips. I have to decide what point at what point do I want to actually cut out the video. You look for certain spots that are appropriate to clip, right? And mid-sentence is never a good place. You want to wait until someone actually finishes their thought before you cut the clip out because you can tell if someone is mid-sentence when you cut them off. It just seems weird. I mean, the tone of their voice, it's a giveaway. So honestly, if they wanted to censor Jill Stein, they could have done a better job at making it less obvious because this is just the sloppy editing job here. And look, this is particularly troubling because part of living in a democracy is having political dialogue, actually being critical of government and people running for government. So they allow Jill Stein to talk about her policy positions, but they only gave her a platform insofar as that wouldn't hurt Hillary Clinton. So go ahead, Jill Stein, talk about yourself. We'll pat you on the head. We know that you're never going to get elected. Uh, you know, we'll make it seem as though uh, you're important. We'll make you feel that way. But don't start talking shit about Hillary Clinton, because if you do, we're going to censor you. Now, PBS ombudsman Michael Gettler responded to this by saying, I do not believe that NewsHour editors removed that section of Stein's comments from the on-air broadcast because they were critical of Hillary Clinton. That just would not make sense, and the program is and has always been routinely too good and committed to journalistic fairness to do something like that. There's been so much criticism of Clinton that has been aired in various ways, and questions asked and in other interviews with her critics and in film clips for a year now that some additional critical commentary from a candidate getting 3% in the polls is not likely to move the needle. But as long as the news hour doesn't care to explain itself more fully, I will offer my opinion. 40 seconds or so is not nothing in TV time, but in a 55-minute broadcast, it would seem to me to have been worth finding those seconds somewhere else so as to not cut the first, perhaps only interview with Dr. Stein and to let her finish answering and let NewsHour television viewers see and hear one of the more provocative questions Woodruff asked. Now, here's where it gets even crazier. So this video where uh, Matt uploaded to YouTube exposing PBS's censorship he also posted it to Facebook and it blew up. It got 100,000 views within like a day or so. And then Facebook censored PBS's censorship of Jill Stein. I'm not kidding. So there you have it. I mean, were they intentionally trying to hide criticism of Hillary Clinton? It very much seems that way because if you cut someone off mid-sentence to where her answer doesn't even make sense, I have to ask the question, what's your agenda? I mean, you don't cut someone off before they even answer coherently she was mid-sentence and then you cut her off so her answer doesn't make sense at all you edited it that way because we don't have her answer and furthermore you cut her off in a very obvious spot to where we can tell that she's being censored so it's really you know it's troubling pbs i always felt was the one organization that i could trust but apparently you have to be weary of 
literally everyone now because you don't know hillary clinton you know her pockets run deep she so pbs you know this news hour staff they have to explain themselves why did you censor jill stein's criticism of hillary clinton YouTuber Philip DeFranco broke the story about how YouTube has entered a new era of censorship that threatens thousands of content creators, myself included. So many content creators are finding a dollar symbol next to several or more videos indicating that it's not advertiser friendly. So what exactly does that mean? Well, according to YouTube, the following criteria makes a video not advertiser friendly which includes but is not limited to sexually suggestive content including partial nudity and sexual humor violence including display of serious injury and events related to violent extremism inappropriate language including harassment profanity and vulgar language promotion of drugs and regulated substances including selling and use and abuse of such items and probably the most troubling aspect is controversial or sensitive subjects and events including subjects related to war political conflicts natural disasters and tragedies even if graphic imagery is not shown so obviously this is all worded very vaguely so as to give youtube a blank check to censor any and all content that they want to for basically any reason i mean if you can't even talk about certain sensitive subjects such as war well can i criticize the iraq war can i talk about the syrian refugee crisis well, apparently not, because actually I've been hit by several of these as well, uh, claims that my videos are not advertiser friendly. So let me give you some examples as to what they flagged from me. They flagged about 12 videos, discussions about police brutality against African-American citizens, Philando Castile, Alton Sterling, Raynette Turner, Rockina Jones. All of these were flagged for me and were deemed not advertiser friendly. Now, I get the Philando Castile and Alton Sterling video since... I mean, those I literally show them being killed by police officers, and I include the clips. But, I mean, when I talk about Rockina Jones, one of the videos that they flagged, it was literally just a video of security footage where she talks about how she doesn't want to die in the jail cell, which she ended up actually dying in the jail cell. Other videos that have been demonetized from me include topics such as terrorist attacks, the pharmaceutical industry and their price gouging techniques, uh, a video where I talked about the Syrian refugee crisis. I literally just provided facts about it and how many people have been displaced, uh, a video where I talk about the Iraq war and criticize the Iraq war, a video where I talk about nuclear proliferation, uh, discrimination against Muslims, the Iran nuclear deal where I literally just break down the details about what's inside the deal. All of these videos have been flagged for being not advertiser friendly. Now, it's weird because it seems as though the flagging is indiscriminate. So this tells me that it's a bot that's doing it because there are some videos that, according to these new guidelines, should have been flagged. So there are multiple videos where I talk about how marijuana should be legalized, and those are fine. However, where I talk about Daraprim, a life-saving AIDS treatment pill, that one was flagged, so it doesn't really make sense. Now, even if it's the case that uh, you're approved and your video is deemed advertiser-friendly, well, you can still be blacklisted from certain types of advertisements, which is still a hit to your monetization. Now, for me, even though just 12 videos out of more than 500 were flagged, well, I saw the sharpest decline in revenue I've ever seen on the channel before. So while at first I wasn't too worried, when I saw that decline, 
it definitely scared me because if I'm not able to make money and monetize my videos, then I can't dedicate this much time to the podcast. Now, in a comment to Mashable, YouTube states, while our policy of demonetizing videos due to advertiser-friendly concerns hasn't changed, we've recently improved the notification and appeal process to ensure better communication to our creators. So basically, what this tells me is that they've been demonetizing videos for a while now, and we just haven't known about it. So in other words, we've been losing revenue for videos that are demonetized, but we didn't know until now. Well, that's still pretty problematic. That's that's harmful. I mean, even though we're monetizing these videos and we're making money off of them, we're making YouTube rich. So I think that they have to show us some respect because they're we're what's keeping them afloat right now. Without us, YouTube would go away and Google would therefore lose billions of dollars. So I think that we're owed more respect than what they're showing us here. Now, I will say this. This is not a First Amendment issue. YouTube is not a democracy. They are well within their rights to censor any content that they want to, but we still have the right to push back as a YouTube community against this form of censorship. I'm not so much worried about my channel as I'm worried about others who have a lot more offensive content. Because uh, for me, I don't really curse very often in my videos, but I mean, I do sometimes talk about sensitive subjects. Often I'm criticizing politicians. So, I mean, I think that I'm, I'm going to be safe from a lot of this, but some of my favorite content creators are probably more threatened than I am. Now, I don't necessarily think that this will be a policy that even lasts very long, because I think with the amount of pushback that they're getting, they're going to have to make a change. They're going to have to address it in some way. And I don't really believe that a ton of YouTubers will be killed off because of this in terms of their channels just dying because they can't monetize it. Um, I, I don't think it's going to come to that. I'm a lot more optimistic than that. However, I do think that this is very troubling and problematic, and it has really got me seriously thinking about ways to grow the channel outside of YouTube and set up some type of contingency plan where I either increase membership benefits or we start uploading videos on thehumanistreport.com. I don't know what to do yet, but it's definitely, uh, you know, it has the gears turning in my head because to, you know, to think about the implications, if YouTube, you know, on a whim just decided to change their policies and started to censor certain types of content, I mean, my channel would obviously be targeted because we address very controversial topics related to war. And apparently, even if you don't show graphic footage or any pictures of war, just talking about it is grounds for them to censor your video according to their terms of service. So this is something that, you know, it's really got me thinking. And look, I'll be the first person to admit that I hate advertisements. They're obnoxious. With that being said, I know that they're a necessary evil because without it, I wouldn't be able to enjoy many of my favorite content creators on YouTube, like the Young Turks and Kyle Kulinski, David Pakman. I mean, and other entertainment videos like H3H3 Productions, Internet Comment Etiquette. I love these people. But without the monetization... They probably wouldn't be able to dedicate all the time that they do to their videos or any at all. So this sets up a bad precedent and I wanted to speak out against this as well because as many voices as we can putting pressure on YouTube, that will influence them to change because if they don't change this, a competitor will rise up and could potentially surpass YouTube. So these types of Orwellian tactics, you know, it may not be government censorship. It's not a First Amendment issue, but it still is an issue of censorship. And YouTube, you know, they're not above criticism. So I think that we have to put pressure on them. Use the hashtag YouTube is over party on Twitter, on Facebook, because if we don't make a lot of noise about this, then YouTube will know that they can abuse their content creators and get away with it. So I'm glad everyone is speaking out and I had to add my voice to that too.
The FBI has released a report that has more information about their inquiry into Hillary Clinton's use of a private email server, and it sheds light on so much more that we didn't previously know about. So the New York Times explains that the documents provided a number of new details about Mrs. Clinton's private server, including what appeared to be a frantic effort by a computer specialist to delete an archive of her emails even after a congressional committee had requested that they be preserved. Among other key findings in the FBI documents, Mrs. Clinton regarded emails containing classified discussions about planned drone strikes as, quote, routine. She said she was unaware of or misunderstood some classification procedures. Colin Powell, a former Secretary of State, advised her to be very careful in how she used email. So this is really interesting, I think, because she used to tout what Colin Powell did when he was Secretary of State. I mean, in, on the debate stage, she talked about how, look, Condoleezza Rice, Colin Powell, they all used private emails. Well, yeah, they used private emails, but they didn't have their own private email server set up in their home. That's an entirely different story. Uh, so this is really interesting. Now, there are a couple things in here that I want to highlight. So when it comes to the deleted emails, the unnamed specialists, well, he deleted her archive of emails just weeks after her use of a private email server had become known to the public. So all of a sudden... People are finding out that she had a private email server in her home and they're deleting emails. And they described it literally as an oh shit moment because the guy realized that he didn't delete a bunch of emails that he was supposed to. Now, when it comes to her actual interview with the FBI, they don't have the transcript. They didn't record it. But they do say that basically she played dumb for the whole thing. So dozens of times during her interview, Mrs. Clinton said she did not remember details about the server or guidance she had received on handling classified information. In its summary of the investigation, the FBI said that Mrs. Clinton had emailed Colin Powell, a former Secretary of State, a day after she was sworn into office about Mr. Powell's use of a personal email account when he was the country's top diplomat. Mr. Powell warned Mrs. Clinton that if she used her BlackBerry for official business, those emails could become official records and subject to the law. Mr. Powell apparently implying that he was cautious in his use of a personal email account added, be very careful. I got around it all by not saying much and not using systems that captured the data. According to the summary of her interview, Mrs. Clinton said that she did not know exactly what Mr. Powell was saying in that email and that his message did not factor into her decision to use a personal email account. So basically, she called up Colin Powell when she became Secretary of State and said, hey dude, look, you used a private email, right? I mean, we both want to get around these FOIA requests. We don't want, you know, there to be any public transparency. So if I use my BlackBerry, would that be okay? And he's telling her, be very careful because that can still be subject to FOIA requests if you use it for official State Department business. And so she probably thought about that and said, you know what? I'll go the extra mile. I'll set up a private email server in my home. This is still unbelievable to me. A private email server. You created a server in your home to avoid transparency. This, <laughs> it's funny because this is the type of things that you see in movies where the politicians are just so uh, uh, stereotypically corrupt that they don't even care. They, they go to these great lengths to shirk accountability and we're seeing it in real life. It's not a movie. And furthermore, she always touts her resume about how she's this capable and qualified candidate. Meanwhile, 
she maintains that she didn't know about the classified markings. So she honestly didn't think to even ask someone that when she saw the C in parentheses in documents that she either sent or received, or she replied to them and then they were included in it, she didn't think to ask, hmm, maybe I should ask them what this C means. No? I mean, who would do that? And look, Hillary Clinton is not stupid. She's very intelligent, so you can't use that defense. We don't believe you. Someone who was a former first lady, a senator, I mean, come on, Hillary, we know that you knew about those markings, but we all know it's a great legal defense. It got you out of being indicted. So more on this. She also said that she did not recall receiving any emails she thought should not be on an unclassified system. The FBI documents say she relied on state officials to use their judgment when emailing her and could not recall anyone raising concerns with her regarding the sensitivity of information she received at her email address, they say. Oh, is that so? Because there was a scathing audit by the State Department that was released where officials maintained that they told you about this. They warned you about this private email server and how it could be under attack and how it's making you vulnerable, but yet you chose to keep that anyway and still send and receive emails as Secretary of State. You conducted official business on an insecure email account and server. And that was after people warned you. You said it yourself, quote, I don't want to risk anything personal getting out. So it's very clear here. And let me remind you, this individual was not indicted. This report was released by the FBI who couldn't even make the recommendation that she should be indicted in spite of all of this evidence. How crazy is that? This is not a democracy. If our public officials cannot be held accountable, that's very authoritarian and it's very troubling. So you can get in office and be as corrupt as you want to be and there's not going to be any form of accountability for you. She didn't even get a slap on the wrist. What uh, James Comey said that she was extremely careless. Oh, boo-hoo. Hillary Clinton knew what that C in parentheses meant. It was classified. And she knew exactly what she was doing, but she knew she couldn't get away with it. That's why she did it. She had something to hide. This is not surprising, but, you know, I'm glad that we have this report because it does shed light on details that I was pretty curious about. One of the main reasons many progressives are refusing to support Hillary Clinton, myself included, is because when it comes to foreign policy, she's just a neoconservative. There's no other way to describe her. I mean, when you look at her past foreign policy endeavors, including her vote for the Iraq War, her intervention in Libya, and even her current policy proposals. I mean, you look at her Syrian no-fly zone, which could reignite the Cold War, the fact that she wants to ramp up the fight against ISIS and topple Bashar al-Assad in Syria. I mean, you cannot make any other conclusion other than Hillary Clinton is a neoconservative. Now, her Syrian no-fly zone is something that I think more people should talk about. I mention it all the time on the show, and why I'm really terrified of Hillary Clinton, it was the most scary policy proposal, hands down, because if you decide to institute a Syrian no-fly zone and then shoot down any planes, which Russia is currently in Syrian airspace, so if they if they violate that Syrian no-fly zone, she's literally saying that she's going to shoot down their planes, that could reignite a new Cold War. That was her scariest policy until now. So Hillary Clinton revealed how she's going to increase cybersecurity, and this is now officially her new scariest policy proposal. So how exactly will Hillary Clinton deal with cyber attacks against the United States? Quote, like any other attack. So if we're hacked and information is exposed, no matter how terrible that might be, you 
can't treat that like any other attack because it's not like any other attack. If there's an actual attack on U.S. soil that's violent, people die. Nobody dies due to a cyber attack. Now, I'm not making excuses for cyber attacks. I think that they're bad. I think that we should take precautions to prevent them from occurring. But to say that you're going to treat a cyber attack like any other attack on the U.S., that is honestly puzzling to me. A cyber attack does not constitute an armed attack. That violates the principle of use ad bellum, which mandates that you must have a just reason to go to war. Getting hacked is not one of them, Hillary. And furthermore, this proposal is illegal under international humanitarian law, which requires a military response to be proportional. That wouldn't be a proportional response. Actually attacking someone and bombing them because they hacked you is not proportional at all. Nobody who's reasonable would believe that. But she explains her policy position a little bit more. As president, I will make it clear that the United States will treat cyber attacks just like any other attack. We will be ready with serious political, economic, and military response. We're going to invest in protecting our governmental networks and our national infrastructure. I want us to lead the world in setting the rules in cyberspace. If America doesn't, others will. So you want to set the example for the world when it comes to cyber attacks. So what you're going to say is, look, if somebody hacks you, you are well within your rights to just straight up bomb them and kill their civilians. Unbelievable. I mean, ramp up security. Don't attack them, Hillary. So she continues, and here's where it gets downright terrifying. Quote, we need to respond to evolving threats from states like Russia, China, Iran, and North Korea, Clinton said in the speech. We need a military that is ready and agile so it can meet the full range of threats and operate on short notice across every domain, not just land, sea, air, and space, but also cyberspace. You've seen reports. Russia's hacked into a lot of things. China has hacked into a lot of things. Russia even hacked into the Democratic National Committee, maybe even some state election systems. So we have got to step up our game. Make sure we are well defended and able to take the fight to those who go after us. We know that Russian intelligence services, which are part of the Russian government, which is under the control of Vladimir Putin, hacked into the DNC. We know that they arranged for a lot of those emails to be released. This gave me chills when I read it. That is terrifying. She literally named Russia and said, I will attack anyone who hacks us. And then she said, Russia has attacked us. So you can honestly get that she's making an implicit threat or the implication is there that she would want to escalate tensions with Russia. And furthermore, she keeps claiming that the DNC was hacked by Russia. There's no evidence for that. Stop saying that because you are going to only further deteriorate our shitty relationship with Russia. Now, I'm not saying that Vladimir Putin is innocent, but what I am saying is that it's not worth starting World War III. I mean, this would bypass the Cold War like her Syria no-fly zone plan would do. It would just reignite a Cold War. This would just launch us directly into another world war. You're claiming that you're going to attack people who hack us. Then you say that Russia hacked us. I don't know even what to say. I don't know how to respond to this. This is something we should never, ever be afraid of from a Democratic presidential nominee. But here she is saying, you know what? If they hack us, I'm going to bomb them. 
Russia, I'm looking at you. China, you too. Iran, you as well. You hack us, you get bombed. Well, according to you, Hillary, they've already hacked us. So does that mean that you're going to attack Russia if you get elected? Furthermore, you could start a war on trumped-up charges because you keep claiming that Russia hacked the DNC in a failed attempt to divert attention away from you and your guilt. So will that be any different when you get into office? I mean, imagine what she's going to do if she's elected. She could say, look, Russia hacked us. I'm not going to show you the evidence, but just trust me. <laughs> trust me that we should definitely start World War III with them because they hacked us. What does this sound like? This sounds like Iraq has weapons of mass destruction. Maybe we should invade them. I'm not going to show you evidence, but trust me, the intelligence is there. How is this any different, Hillary? You haven't presented evidence, so as far as I'm concerned, it's not truthful to suggest that Russia hacked you when we don't have evidence of that. We don't know who hacked the DNC. So you're literally using an entire government as a scapegoat because you want to avert attention away from you. And now you're saying that you're going to attack people who hacked the DNC and who hacked the US. That is terrifying. And this should be advertised everywhere. This should be on the news. This should be covered nonstop. Because this is the most irresponsible thing I've ever seen a presidential candidate say, short of Trump asking why we can't use nuclear weapons. So regardless of who gets in office, Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump, either of those two individuals, the two mainstream candidates, the front runners, they are going to be potentially damaging, either starting World War III or a nuclear holocaust. This is really scary. Now, look, let me just say this. We know that you've got secrets, Hillary. It's why your husband used taxpayer dollars to set up a private email server for you. But whatever you're hiding, it's not worth starting World War III over. I can assure you of that. Again, <laughs> I just want to emphasize here the two mainstream political candidates. One of them is hellbent on using nuclear weapons. The other is hellbent on starting a new world war by either attacking Russia or China. We have to get Gary Johnson and Jill Stein into the debates because if we don't, if Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump is elected, which it looks like one of them will be, we're going to have to be really vigilant for the next four to eight years. We're going to have to put pressure on them to not do anything crazy. We're going to have to be afraid because Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump, they're just not suitable for an office that requires someone to not be trigger happy, and these individuals are. So please, everyone, share this. Uh, if you don't want to share the video, I'll put a link in the description box to the article, because people have to find out what Hillary Clinton is saying. This is very, very irresponsible. We can't have someone in office who wants to start a war with Russia. It's not okay. And I could say, I can, I could justify her wanting to start a war with Russia if she said, "Look, if Russia actually attacks us, I'm gonna hit them back." That makes sense to me. I could rationalize that. But to say that it's justified and proportional to somehow attack them if they hack you, that's insane. I am here with a candidate for Senate for the state of Utah. I have Misty Snow here. She is a Berniecrat who is progressive, and she's one of the few who have actually been successful in winning her Democratic primary. So Misty Snow, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me, Mike. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself and why you decided to run for Congress? So I have a lifelong resident of Utah. I actually, you know, I'm not like a, never ran for office before. I actually work at a grocery store, so I'm more of a working class person. Um, what made me decide to run for Congress is that I was wanted to see somebody, you know, challenge the Republicans. And 
the other candidate who's running for the Democratic nomination, he was not a candidate who was going to raise issues uh, that I care about. In his own words, he was a conservative. He was pro-life. He was against Planned Parenthood. He wrote an op-ed about it, and I thought didn't think it was just unacceptable, but offensive. And that his conservative views didn't stop with women's reproductive rights. It was his view on same-sex marriage, that it should be a religious sacrament. He was pro-war. He was in favor of private prisons. And, you know, so on issue after issue, I was really disappointed and didn't want him to, you know, get the Democratic nomination uncontested. So I uh, filed the paperwork to run against him and I was able to challenge for the nomination. But what helped me with my calculations was that Bernie Sanders won this uh, big win in New Hampshire by like 22% margin. And I knew looking at Utah's demographics and understanding that Bernie Sanders like would probably win really big in Utah and that a lot of the delegates of state convention would also be uh, elected out of those uh, same uh, caucuses. I knew that there'd probably be a really progressive Bernie Sanders type uh, delegation at the state convention and that this guy could be really challenged from the left. Explain kind of how you did this, because, I mean, you're a grocery store worker. You explained how you filed the proper paperwork and whatnot. But, I mean, if someone else in the country is dissatisfied and they want to run for Congress, I mean, where do you even begin? How did you start? So, I mean, I just kind of did a bit of research. I, you know, it was like February filing. Uh, the filing week in Utah is March, was March 11th through March 17th. So it was like middle of February. So it's kind of like decision time. And right after New Hampshire, I'm like, you know, I think I'm going to do it. My a lot of people like it's just like my mom tried talking about a lot of people like you know this is kind of a crazy idea but my gut's like no i just need to I have this gut feeling i'm gonna do it it's gonna work out it's gonna be worth it so i filed paperwork and filed for u.s senate and i mean at least in utah was 1355 dollars which is a lot of money for someone like me and you know my federal tax return this year i happen to be about like 1357 dollars so it was so i took my that and my state tax return to create a campaign account and most of that money went to cover the filing fee, and as so I didn't have a lot of money, I didn't know anybody in the Utah Democratic Party, just didn't know a lot about the process, just kind of looked online, kind of read the bunch of the process and figured out, filed the paperwork on March 16th, and, you know, just kind of started going to some of the county caucuses, making some speeches, and after Salt Lake County Convention, someone reached out to me, this uh, girl's like 21 years old, she's I uh, was like in a sorority at the at the University of Utah, and you know that was like my one volunteer ahead of the state convention. And I remember my first campaign meeting four days before the state convention, just uh, me and this 21 year old sorority girl, and she's just and we're talking about like, what the strategy is, and she's just like, you know, you have to I have to make it all about abortion. I need to try to highlight my opponent's conservative views. Send an email out to all the delegates the night before. You know, you know, suggest that he's pro life, but don't name him specifically and then you know that was kind of the plan i did that i linked that op-ed he wrote on my facebook page and kind of increased awareness about his positions and you know i started the state convention i had you know literally didn't even have somebody at my booth for the first session of the caucus of the state convention but i made sure i got the very first speech of the day at the progressive caucus and then the women's caucus and just spoke out really uh, in favor of women's reproductive rights and, you know, talk, said how, talked about how my opponent wrote an op-ed where he called for an investigation in Planned Parenthood, how he described himself as conservative and pro-life. And, you know, it just did that, was able to get endorsements from the Women's Caucus, from the Progressive Caucus, from the Stonewall Caucus, which is the LGBT one, got the Young Democrats, Hispanic, 
the Asian American Pacific Islander Caucus, and the Disability Caucus. And, you know, and by the end of the day, you know, this girl, like this 21-year-old, she was able to help get a bunch of people on stage with me because I was able to generate a lot of excitement because based solely on how well I performed and the caucuses with my speeches. And, you know, like when a day started, I thought it'd just be me, her, and one other girl because she gave my second speech, someone else gave my nominating speech. I thought it was just going to be three of us on stage. I ended up with probably like 40 people on the stage, a great stage presence. And I was able to get 45% of the vote to force a primary. And that is truly like a phenomenal underdog story because you hear about people running for their state senate and they're just like, you know, a grocery store worker, but never for U.S. Congress and then actually winning their primary. So I think that's absolutely just, it's phenomenal. So let me ask you this. How did you fund your campaign? Because I don't believe you have a super PAC, right? So I mean, do you raise grassroots funds? Do you knock on doors? How do you actually go about raising money? I won it with like 59.4% of the vote, which is a huge win. You know, I spent probably about $6,000 and that didn't have a lot of donations. And you know, my opponent, he spent like four times that. And I had almost no money. It was just simply by really generating a lot of excitement among the Bernie Sanders crowd. And I think that guy being a self-described conservative really hurt him. And But because we nailed, nailed him so hard on abortion, every interview, every article ever written about him, every everyone ever talked about to, to him about that, you know, asked about his stance on abortion. He was just so stuck with, got stuck with the pro-life label that he really hurt him in the state in the statewide Democratic primary. And so I didn't have much money. Now that I'm the, the nominee, I do have a bit more fundraising, but most of it's been small donations because I've really tied to kind of like this Bernie Sanders revolution type movement. I get a lot of kind of small individual donations. I haven't had a single donation from a pack. I've had a couple of packs endorse me. Uh, Blue America's put me on some of their joint fundraising lists, but not made a direct donation to my campaign. So that's about the most closest to like pack money I get. It's just small donations. I've had two max out donations of $2,700. One of them was for my cousin. So it's been a lot of small donations. I think my average donations probably like $35, $40. I mean, it's so and a lot of them actually aren't even in the state of Utah because I've generated a lot of national press. And you know, hopefully that continues because if we learn anything from Bernie Sanders campaign, small donations in, in large numbers can make a huge difference. Absolutely. And I think it also gives you this sort of legitimacy, because even though someone like you, you don't have experience holding public office, but people are really inclined to vote for someone like you, who is just a grocery store worker, because we know that you're not beholden to corporations, you know, all these big business interests that is making Congress basically inoperable currently. So I think that that honestly is a huge benefit. And also the fact that you're kind of able to take some of the momentum from Bernie's movement and kind of use that to help you. I think it's great. So let me ask you this, though, speaking of Bernie, has he endorsed you and uh, or has Hillary Clinton endorsed you? Because, I mean, what I've heard is that Utah is actually a competitive state this year since Donald Trump is doing so bad. So, I mean, since you're actually on the radar, you could potentially be another seat in the Senate for the Democrats. Have you gotten any attention from any of them? No, not much. I mean, we've been trying to reach out to the Bernie campaign, to our revolution. Like, can you guys, like, endorse me? You know, Utah was uh, Bernie Sanders' third best state in the voting. He had 79% of the vote uh, compared to Hillary Clinton's 20%. So it was not even close. But they haven't, our revolution has not endorsed a single Utah candidate. Bernie Sanders hasn't endorsed any Utah candidates. Like, you know, and just having that endorsement, it would help my campaign, but it also... Be, you know, the Senate race being the second race on the ballot after presidency, it's a statewide race. It would help generate a lot of excitement here in the state of Utah and help uh, probably turn out a lot more millennials, which we need not just for my race, but all the down ballot Democrats as well. 
State of Utah in 2014, we lost as the Red Democrats lost the state legislative seat by 47 votes, another one by 53 votes, another one by 195 votes. So generating enough excitement about my race can turn out more Democrats to help the down ballot candidates, whether or not they think I can win. So I think it's important that they help that they support me, but I haven't seen that happen. But you know, far as state being competitive in the presidential race, that much is true. There have been there have been a couple polls where Hillary Clinton is tied to Donald Trump. There was one poll where Hillary Clinton was actually 2% above Donald Trump. I think the worst poll for her had her about down like 15 points below Trump. I think the most recent poll by Ipsos was like, it was like 44 for Trump, 39 for Clinton. But there have been a lot of polls that have showed Hillary Clinton close. And she actually just opened up a campaign office in Utah like a week ago. And they've actually been uh, mail doing some mailers in the state of Utah, which pretty much never happens in the uh, in Utah for Democratic presidential candidates. You never see them open an office here for general election, and you never see their campaign spending money on mailers. So the fact that they're doing that means that they do see this as being a potentially competitive state, and a presidential elections competitive in state. Other statewide races, such as Senate and gubernatorial races, uh, sometimes come into play as well, and hopefully uh, Hillary Clinton will, you know, if she doesn't endorse me, at least try to turn out some uh, more uh, voters that will, you know, help out down ballot Democrats. Your campaign is really important. I think not just for the state of Utah, but I mean, a lot of progressives around the country, they like donating to grassroots funded candidates like yourself, because I mean, it's not just about you getting in the Senate, but we're looking down the line, like, are we going to have a Misty Snow governor or president someday? It's about continuing the, uh, the progressive revolution. So that's why I think a lot of people think that this is important. So it's frustrating to me that you haven't gotten much support from the national democratic party but i think that hopefully this type of um you know these interviews and whatnot and all of your presence online will help to get people to put the pressure on the democratic party and bernie sanders hopefully to get you on the our revolution website as well because yeah I, I think your your campaign is very important now getting to the policies so i know that basically you are very similar to bernie sanders in terms of policy positions can you highlight like a couple of policies where uh you think that they're really important or ones maybe that you'd like to fight for particularly when you get to the Senate? So I really, really think we need to fight for a living wage. I support raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour over the next uh, few years with an annual adjustment for inflation thereafter. You know, Social Security Administration says that 51% of people make $30,000 a year or less. That means a majority of workers in this country are living in poverty or near it. And you know, so fighting for like $15 an hour minimum wage would help rift literally tens of millions of workers into a better standard of living. It's And when we think about who makes low wages, it's disproportionately women, it's disproportionately people of color, disproportionately members of the LGBT community. So when we talk about closing the wage gap experienced by women or people of color or members of the LGBT community, you know, raising the minimum wage has to be a part of that. When two thirds of our minimum wage workers are women, you know, if we get to a serious discussion about closing the gender wage gap, can't take place unless you're talking about raising the minimum wage because they're the ones making the low wages. So I think that is something we need to fight for. I think that's something that is necessary. And I think that's something we can win on because polling shows uh, consistently that majority of Americans want to raise the minimum wage because uh, they recognize that 725 is not a living wage. You can't live on that in Utah or anywhere else in the country. And when you're making that low wage, you become depending on food stamps, uh, subsidized housing and heating. And one study said that Walmart employees, uh, they get they get paid something equivalent of $6.2 billion a year in taxpayer 
money in uh, subsidies. So that's a, that's a problem. And uh, nationwide, all corporations is like $147 billion a year. That's how much the taxpayers are paying uh, to subsidize the low wages paid by corporations like Walmart and McDonald's. And so if we made their, these corporations pay a living wage, that would be more the money we could save on those programs, which could be used to invest in, say, uh, maybe making uh, higher education tuition free, maybe investing in our infrastructure, maybe, uh, you know, any uh, number of other things. And, you know, the reality is we should just make corporations pay their workers a living wage because no corporation is profitable without the talent and labors of its workers. And those workers deserve to share in the fruits of those labors uh, and of their labor. Another policy I think we need to really fight for is paid maternity leave. United States of America is one of a very few small number of countries that does not yet offer its mother's paid maternity leave. The only other nation in the world with over a million people is Papua New Guinea. And, you know, there might be a couple of smaller countries with populations below one million, but their data is not that good in those countries. So we stand nearly alone as the richest country in the history of Earth to not and not offering mothers paid maternity leave. Rich countries, poor countries, small countries, large countries have all figured out how to guarantee their mothers paid maternity leave. You know, reality is everybody has a mother, everybody knows somebody's given birth. So why cannot can't why can't we not guarantee paid maternity leave for our mothers? Other countries have already moved on to giving uh, guarantee of paid leave for fathers as well. And we have we are so far behind, we're still fighting to give our mothers paid maternity leave. And as someone who's running the state of Utah, which has the nation's highest birth rate, I find that's an issue that really resonates uh, with a lot of Utah mothers and families. Those are the types of issues that can really galvanize the progressive base. So I think that's fantastic. Now, let me ask you this, because I think that the dynamic between uh, your race is really interesting. So you are a progressive, so you're pretty liberal, but you're running against someone who is very conservative. He's a Tea Partier. He's Mike Lee. So can you tell us a little bit about him and why you think voters are dissatisfied with him? So a recent poll had him at, so a June poll had him at 38% approval rating. Most recent poll had him 42% approval rating. <laughs> So those are not what we would call a good numbers for someone seeking re-election for an incumbent. I mean, those those aren't they're not terrible the worst approval ratings, but they are not good approval ratings, and that's largely because a lot of Utahns they remember his government shutdown. They remember it hurting the state. It cost our state millions of dollars, and you know, by this government shutdown, thirty-five thousand people who worked for the federal government were out of work. They there were they didn't know when their next paycheck was coming. They didn't know if they'd work when they'd be working again. And a lot of them were avoiding spending money because they were there was this great uncertainty, and that really hurt them and their families. And in addition to that, state of Utah, we have five national parks, we have multiple national monuments, we have lots of national forest land. And during the government shutdown, that's all shut down as well. And there's a lot of towns and communities all throughout the state of Utah that depend on tourism to those destinations. So when no, when the government shut down, nobody's coming to their hotels, nobody's coming to eat their restaurants or buy stuff from their gift shops. So all the people in those communities, they were hurt as well because the, their entire economy essentially got shut down with the government shutdown. So there's a lot of anger towards that. A lot of people really resent that. Um, in addition to that, he's on other issues. Again, he's kind of like a power of not wanting to do his job. You know, he like could join the Senate Republicans and not uh, hold any hearing for Merrick Garland. Our poll last week by public policy polling said 65% of Utahns want Merrick Garland to have a confirmation hearing. And if Mike Lee doesn't think he's qualified, well, then ask him questions. You can find out where he stands on issues. And if you don't think he's qualified, vote him down. But Utahns want you to give him a hearing because that's what your job is. And, you know, and so it's by not giving him a hearing, he's 
It's his pattern of not doing his job. Other bills he's voted against is he's voted against raising the minimum wage, but despite having rhetoric about how he wants poor people to have more money in their pockets. So he talks about how his support for families, yet he blocked aid to Flint during the water crisis to prevent them from drinking water contaminated lead. So if he really cared about children, he would want to do everything he could to prevent them from drink from children drinking contaminated water. He voted against renewing the Violence Against Women Act in 2013 because he seems to, I guess he's okay with women being abused. So he, on issue after issue, he has not been a good uh, champion for the working people, for women, for children, or Utah families. And I think uh, by making the case that I'm a working class person who's going to fight for working class people and their families, I feel that there, it's possible uh, to attack him from that because he can't not working class me because he was a decent lawyer before he was a senator and his father was a politician he doesn't have any empathy for what it's like to be poor he's never been poor he doesn't understand what it's like for people who are living paycheck to paycheck and i you know i try to make the case that i am a better representative for utah families let me ask you this because utah generally speaking uh you know they're on board with progressive issues such as living wage and whatnot. But I mean, generally speaking, they're pretty conservative. So what has the reception been to you? Because I mean, obviously your campaign is historic. You are the first uh, transgender candidate. So I mean, how have they received you there? Has there been any backlash or have they been generally excited? Oh, there's been a lot of excitement. I haven't had any backlash. No, no one's been too negative about me being trans. I mean, it hasn't even, you know, in the Utah press, I mean, a lot of them don't even talk about that. It's that National press talks about Utah press. It's more about issues. It's more they focus more. You know the fact they focus more on the fact that I work at a grocery store. That is, you know, I guess seem more controversial than being trans. I don't know, but you know, Utah my has this is very Republican, but it's not like the same kind of conservatism you see in like say the South. I think it's kind of has this more of a kind of a libertarian culture. I mean, polls, you know, the same public policy poll showed that 81% of Utahns want background checks on all gun sales. 78% of Utahns want uh, people terror watch, people on terror watch lists not be able to buy guns. 64% are in favor of legal uh, medical cannabis. Um, so there's just like a lot of issues. Utahns are actually progressive. They just have to be convinced to stop voting against their interests. And I think, you know, the problem is that Utah actually has a problem with uh, turnout. Uh, 2014 election, we had a turnout rate of 28.8%, which I think would allow to, which means we tied for third lowest in the nation. Only Texas was lower. Uh, so that's something to, that's really disappointing. And so we, I think it's really an issue of turning out voters instead of staying home. And I think one of the issues that really contributed to a lot of dissatisfaction people actually want to turn out is that Utah Democratic Party for far too long has had this idea that they have to nominate conservative Democrats to be their nominees. These uh, straight white Mormon men who are almost indistinguishable from the Republicans. I mean, I don't know if you remember Jim Matheson, but he was in the Congress for like 14 years in House of Representatives, and he was a what they call a blue dog Democrat who was pro-war, anti-environment, and anti-gay. And you know, a lot of Democrats actually hated him, but he was able to get reelected by painting himself as like a Republican. You know, so it was, you know, but that, that was a long time ago now. It's, you know, I think Utah, the demographics have shifted a lot more. It's a very young state. It's become a lot less white, a lot less LDS. And, you know, a lot of people, you know, they actually, they're, when it comes to issues, they're fairly progressive. They just have to, you know, realize that, you know, it's that Republicans have not served their interests, have not championed the issues they care about. Utah also being the youngest state in the nation, we have probably more millennials per capita than any other. 
And I tried to make the case that at 31 years old, if I was elected to U.S. Senate, I would be the first millennial elected to U.S. Senate. And I tried to make the case that I'd be our voice to, I tried to make the case for millennials that I'd be our voice for Congress. I'm a voice for our generation. And they should come out and vote for me. They should support me. That's really encouraging, actually, to hear that you can focus on the policy substance and really get people to support you that way. Because I don't know if you saw the coverage that we've done of you before, but I was actually pretty critical of MSNBC when they had you on because all that they could focus yeah, on. Yeah, that'd be about me and Zephyr. Right, right. Yeah. And I, I was frustrated because you had all these policy positions that are exciting. I mean, it's very rare that a Bernie Krat, well, I mean, I don't know if it's necessarily rare, but we've had some bad losses lately. I mean, we had Alan Grace and Tim Conova. They lost their primaries against an establishment Democrat yeah. and you won. So, I mean, all these policy positions that you have are really exciting, yet they didn't focus on that in the interview. So I was very critical of that. 30-year-old transgender woman, transgender nominee, transgender woman, you are transgender woman, you are a cashier, which may make it more challenging than actually being a transgender woman, that you don't have a political background. Comment on you being a transgender woman. Are yeah, so I think Tim Canova losing was sad. And Al Grayson, he was probably one of the most progressive people in the House of Representatives, but he, like I said, he lost that race not because of the policy position, but he was actually leading the polls right up until some of the scandals came out about his hedge fund or how he uh, was abusive towards his ex-wife. And that I, that's what that's what hurt his uh, candidacy, uh, which is unfortunate, but that's why you have to, you know, have to be, you know, be careful about uh, what you do in your personal life, too, when you're running for office. Um, but I, we have won some other progressives. Gross uh, Feingold won his primary, and ho hopefully he'll get returned to the Senate because he was he was the one senator who voted against the Patriot Act in 2002, uh, 2001, 2002 when they put that when they put that it was the 99 to one. He was that one vote. So having like someone who actually cares about our civil rights uh, return to the Senate would be great. Some other. Uh, like progressives have won in other uh, races throughout the country, I think. Yeah, so we just need to keep uh, raising the issue about progressives, you know, fighting for these issues. Even if you don't think you can win, just by talking about issues such as $15 hour minimum wage, paid maternity leave, single-payer health care, and other issues, just by talking about them, you're, we're raising awareness about those issues, which creates political will for those issues. So it's important to advocate for those issues. It's important to support candidates who are talking about those issues because that's how you move the change the dialogue. And I think that your campaign is particularly important, especially after these losses, because I've heard from a lot of people right now, they just feel so disappointed and disheartened and they feel like they can never have any success, you know, at the ballot box. But I think that yours is kind of that shining ray of hope where we can look at you and see, oh, okay, there is a progressive Democrat that was able to win in Utah. So I love it. So we're all rooting for you. Can you tell us where we could find out more information about you and your policies and how we can actually help support your campaign? So for those who'd like to find out more about my campaign, I recommend going to my website at mistyksnow.com, M-I-S-T-Y-K-S-N-O-W. And on my website, if you want to help out, there is a link to my Act Blue page, which if you'd like to make a donation. And, you know, if I was elected to a Senate, I'd be one of 100 senators. You know, if, every, if everybody donated, say, $100 or whatever they could, you know, I would be able to compete Mike with Mike Lee uh, financially. He's had six years to build up a campaign fund. I've had four months. I need those donations. I appreciate those donations. If you happen to live in Utah and can volunteer for me, that's also great. 
And, you know, if nothing else, you can also subscribe to the mailing list. At the bottom of my website, there's links to my Twitter, my Instagram, my Facebook page. If you do any of those and you like my like the stuff I'm posting, you know, by all means, share it with the other social on your social media accounts. You know, get the word out to help, you know, help uh, spread the word about me because that always you know, increases my audience. And the larger my audience, the more, uh, you know, anytime I put out an email for fundraising or trends, put a post, you know, increases the potential to get generate more donations. And, you know, again, if you know, if you know anyone who can donate, again, we need those donations. We appreciate those donations. That's, you know, Bernie Sanders showed us that powers, the power of small donation in large numbers. You guys can do that too. And I need those donations. And even for whatever reason you think, oh, it's Utah. Yeah, I don't have a chance. Well, it's important to support me because I'm raising voice, giving voice to these issues. And by supporting me, you're allowing me to increase my audience and reach more people by talking about these issues. There you guys have it. Uh, hopefully you guys enjoyed that. Uh, Misty Snow is a fantastic candidate and hopefully she can defeat Mike Lee. Thank you for having me on your show. That's all I got for you guys today. Hopefully you guys enjoyed the episode. It's a little bit longer than usual, and I'm kind of looking to actually have longer episodes. Overall, maybe there's going to be some changes just because of all these, you know, the new censorship on YouTube. I'm potentially thinking about expanding membership benefits in a way that will kind of lure people into becoming a member, but I feel like right now, anyone who's a member or a Patreon patron, they're just doing it because they genuinely support the show. But I'm trying to think of ways to actually make it worth people's while so that way in the event we lose monetization on our videos there's a way that the show can survive we can still make money because even if i'm not really profitable you know i'll work and still produce the show so long as i can actually get the web fees paid for and whatnot then we'll be okay so i'm trying to think of contingency plans and uh, you know uh, the gears are turning so if you have any ideas please comment down below i might be doing more sponsored videos and sponsorship videos i would never do it like in lieu of a normal video it'd just be like a bonus video um but i mean it's it, it's a way to kind of make extra money in case youtube is giving me the runaround um so yeah you guys enjoyed the episode hopefully you guys found this informative um so i'll see you guys next week <laughs>